Welcome to another episode of the Wisconsin Law Review Podcast Forward. I'm thrilled to release this episode. It's a bit of a primer for the symposium the Wisconsin Law Review will be hosting at the end of October, entitled Controlling the Supreme Court, Now and Far into the Future. Our symposium will take place in person and remotely from October 28th to October 29th, and will include a bevy of the premier constitutional legal scholars in our nation. Registration for the event is available on our website at wlr.wisc.edu under the symposium tab. I say I'm thrilled because this conversation with Bruce Ledowitz and Eric Siegel, the symposium hosts, serves as such a good primer for the timely discourse this event will showcase. Bruce teaches law at Duquesne University and Eric teaches law at Georgia State, amongst their many other accolades, some of which they'll mention in their individual introductions. To prepare attendees for the symposium, we discuss everything from the timeliness of this symposium, the prospects of the court as an institution, partisanship, the role of precedent, and honestly, a host of other topics that define where the court is today and how we grapple with it moving forward. You'll hear my enthusiasm throughout the conversation, alongside these gentlemen's ability to disagree with one another while maintaining civility and camaraderie. Without further ado, I'll just let the conversation speak for itself. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Uh, Bruce and Eric, I really appreciate it. Uh, Bruce, we'll start with you. I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Uh, thank you, Traeger. I'm Bruce Ledowitz. I'm the Von Kamm Chair at uh, the Thomas R. Klein School of Law of Duquesne University. We've just changed our name because of a large gift. I've been teaching law since 1980, a very long time. And um, uh, my specialty is really law and religion and law in the secular. And uh, I've been tracking the changes that have come over this society with the death of God and, and as exemplified in my own life since I've left my, uh, my Judaism behind. So uh, that's me and the effect of all those things on law. Hmm. That's fascinating. I, I, I have taken a look at your blog, Hallowed Secularism, and I'm certain I wanna be a Pat not a Sam. Um, I'm curious, what are, what are the fundamental ways that I, I'd be able to do that? Right well, there, 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 as, you, as you say, there are two kinds of secularism. There's the dominant one in this society, which is um, essentially materialistic, uh, relativistic, nihilistic, um, not because it wants to be, it's simply the reflexive point. It's, it's what you hear in, in the Senate hearings when a, when a nominee says, uh, I don't want to give my opinion, uh, I want to follow the law, um, because we assume that all values are simply opinion, that, that there, aren't, there is no objective truth, objective beauty, objective good. And this has been coming for a very long time uh, with the death of God. And we simply do not know yet how to build a secular society, a secular civilization, a secular law, a really secular law, genuinely so, which American law never was, despite the uh, separation of church and state. Uh, it, but in any event, um, these two kinds of secularism, as, as, as you see from the blog, uh, have to do with the sec secularism of very good people who are you know, just as good as people who are religious, good without God, uh, but they um, don't have an, a sense of order in the universe. They are not able to agree with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that the arc of the moral universe so long bends toward justice. And then there's a, a budding uh, group of secularists uh, growing and uh, some very interesting work uh, is being done. And I, I wrote my most recent book, The Universe is on Our Side from this perspective, that the universe is on our side and that um, even without a God figure, um, the good, the true, and the beautiful are real. They have effects, they have consequences, they have attraction. And uh, law follows them, actually, over time. And uh, that's what you uh, see in the, in the blog, the distinction between the two types. But it's not something that you do. So, Traeger, I don't have any advice for you, except for the uh, advice of Bernard Lonergan, uh, the great theologian, Canadian theologian, who whose, I, I stole his question, is the universe on our side? The first step is simply to ask that question and try to answer it in a serious way. Um, mm -hmm. There's no guarantee how that question gets answered in any one particular life. Um, but 
you can't force it. You just have to go with where you actually are. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Know, know where you are first. I love that God is dead is not a conversation ender. There is there is more after that. And the universe is on our side. The The optimism of that is beautiful. Um, we do go alphabetically here. So Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Eric, I'd love for you to introduce yourself as well. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Thanks for doing this. I'm Eric Siegel. I'm the Ash Family Chair, Professor of Law at Georgia State. Before that, I worked for the Department of Justice and a big law firm before that. And I've been teaching constitutional law for 31 years. Wow. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, your book, uh, Originalism is Faith and Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges, really grabbed me. Uh, it's amazing. So I, I'd love for you to give me the elevator speech on that, Where that title. Sure. Well, let me just say that um, Bruce... Bruce's remarks are at a level that are significantly higher and more important on a global basis than what we're about to talk about. Um, and, and I think they're relevant, what we're about to talk about. But I'm going to talk about something a little bit smaller, but not not much smaller. I'm not sure God is dead, by the way, because I'm not sure God ever lived, but that's a different conversation. Yeah. Um, so there's one thing we expect of judges. And when I say we, I mean virtually every free country in the history of the world, which is that Judges will not make all things considered decisions, but will take prior law into account in at least a minimal way, knowing that forever judges have had discretion, especially appellate judges, especially the highest judges of a state or land. Um, but if Justice Roberts were to announce tomorrow in a press release that I met with my brethren and all nine of us agree that from now on, we are just going to decide what's best for the country in our decisions. We're going to look at text, history, precedent, and tradition as guides. But at the end of the day, we're going to do all things considered what we think is best and what we think we can get away with. But if hmm. he announced that, nobody would call the Supreme Court a court. They would call it something else because that's not being a judge. Well, I'm here to tell you that since 1857, the Supreme Court of the United States um, has, on a consistent basis, not taken prior law minimally seriously, makes all things considered decisions. The only constraint is what they can get away with because they have no purse or sword, in the words of Alexander Hamilton. But, but they don't do law. They don't care about law. They will use law rhetorically to justify results reached on other grounds. This is a nonpartisan critique. This was true of the Warren Court. It's true of the Roberts Court. It's true of the court that decided Dred Scott in 1857, where despite clear textual language in Article 4, giving the Congress of the United States the power to make all the rules and regulations for the territories, a bunch of unelected, life-tenured lawyers decided Congress couldn't do that hmm. for really no good reason at all. And it's been a downhill slide ever since so the the elevator speech is to be a judge one has to feel the tug of prior law we can debate how big a tug but there has to be a tug but when you have life tenure and your decisions are final that is a job description that will not allow most human beings to feel that tug they will come to equate the law with what they think is best and that's not something we expect judges to do. Hmm. Really interesting. That 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 prior tug is what is necessary to the definition of a judge. And we've departed from that in some sense. Um, in, in all senses, when it comes to the Supreme Court. That folds beautifully into my next question, which we were discussing this a little before the podcast. But I feel, as a law student, that this symposium is crucial at this point in time. This is this is a very timely time to be talking about controlling the Supreme Court. And Eric, you said this could this symposium could be happening at, at various points. Please elaborate on that. I'll try to be quick, but that's not a soundbite question, so I can't give a soundbite answer. But <laughs> if one was alive in 1857 and one had any kind of moral sense, one would have been absolutely destroyed by the Supreme Court saying Congress couldn't end slavery in the territories. I mean, right, one would have, and there was, they led directly to the Civil War. If between 1900 and 1935, 
the Supreme Court invalidated somewhere around 200 laws involving minimum wages, overtime rules, labor conditions, worker safety. They did it over and over again based on values, not law, all of which led Franklin Roosevelt in 1936 to go on the radio, the medium of the time, and say, and I'm quoting here, the Supreme Court is full of aged and infirm men. Aged and infirm men. That's what he said. And he said, we have to save the country from the court. And he threatened to pack the court. And if you were progressive or liberal in 1934, you would have been devastated by the last 35 years, three decades of Supreme Court decisions, just as angry as liberals and progressives are today, justifiably about abortion, affirmative action, and all that stuff. And then finally, in 2000, it could have gone very different. Al Gore could have said, wait a minute, we have five Supreme Court justices who claim to believe in states' rights, who have been yelling at us now for, for a decade about the need for state autonomy, but they're going to tell the Florida Supreme Court how to run the Florida election? That's crazy. Al Gore could have said, I'm not, this is not a legitimate decision. These five justices, there's no rule of law in their decision that they've ever, ever, ever embraced before, and they probably won't embrace it again. I am not going to go away quietly. Had he done that, who knows what would have happened, right? Yeah. Right? And, and going all the way up to Shelby County versus Holder, which invalidated probably the most important federal law in the history of this country. So although the last two terms have been bad for progressives and controversial maybe for everybody, this is what this institution has done consistently throughout American history. And we could have had this symposium. I think it's a great time to have it. Don't get me wrong. I think it's very timely. There were many, many, many other times in American history people were just as riled up about the Supreme Court as we are today. Wow, absolutely. Uh, Bruce, I'll, tur I'll turn the question to you. Save the country from the court. Why now? Well, now, uh, Eric and I are going to um, uh, disagree, but in a way not. Um, because Eric, Eric illustrates my point that if we had had this symposium earlier at any of these other points that he mentions, there would have been people upset about particular lines of cases, particular instances, particular issues, particular frameworks. Um, people in, in uh, 1935 were angry about economic issues, but not particularly about free speech, for example. And the subtitle of this is uh, this symposium is controlling the court uh, now and far into the future. And what we see today is something very different a desire to control the court in all ways, in all that it does forever. Uh, and that's a, that's a very different kind of control. You see, in Eric's universe, people thought the court was getting it wrong and they wanted to write the court into getting it right. Today, we don't have any sense that there's a wrong or a right. Each side simply wants to dominate. Each side wants its way. And they'd be hard pressed to say, really, this is the truth of things. Um, they, 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 both sides are looking for power because both sides really believe there isn't any law. There just is power in the long run. That's all it is. And so um, Eric's right. Uh, people have been upset before about the court, tried, tried to control the court in, particular, in particulars, but only now try to control the court in everything. And that's both sides. Um, that's interesting, Bruce. I'm, I, I guess I, I, there's, a, I'm not sure I agree a hundred percent with your history there. Um, the court in 1870 declared that Congress didn't have the power to make paper money legal tender. It was a, it was the most watched Supreme Court decision in history, even more than Dred Scott come 1870. And it, it affected the economy in amazingly important ways, obviously. They basically said Congress couldn't make paper money legal tender because the Constitution only refers to coin. On the day they announced the decision, the President Grant had two picks. And everyone in the world knew, everyone, that he had a litmus test. He was only going to appoint justices who would vote to overturn this landmark decision. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, you're right. That was a that was control over a particular issue. But people at the time thought that issue was 
country defining, country changing, country altering, you know, country ending, depending on one's economic perspective. Grant gets these two picks and one year to the day late, one year to, I think to the week, but definitely one year later, the very next term with nothing changed except these two new bodies on the court, the Supreme Court reverses itself, says Congress does have this power and gives an entire different perspective on the relationship between Congress's powers and the constitution. The only thing that changed were two different bodies on the court. That's 1870, 1871. And the newspapers in 1871 who were opposed to the reversal said this was Grant, quote, packing the court. This mm-hmm. was Grant putting his cronies on the court to do his bidding, not just on the legal tender cases, but across the board. They didn't believe in anything other than raw power. They certainly didn't believe in text. They certainly didn't believe in history or tradition because none of that changed. The only thing that changed from 1870 to 1871 were the people on the court. I think um, for a long time now, people have been fighting over who owns the Supreme Court. And it's not always issue specific, although I agree with you, sometimes it is issue specific. I do agree with that. Right. And and we have to also remember there's there are other there are counter countervailing uh, trends. You know, I I always hear Justice Harlan in my in my head from Poe, and that classic tradition of that common law tradition. You know, out of which living constitutionalism originally came, mm-hmm. which was that that law is reason uncovering itself over time, and a, a lot of jags, and and you may be pointing to the jags. But there's a general direction over time, at least in important ways, like equality, for example, and um, and these things uh, tend to uh, go on, and the American people have a sense of them, and the Constitution and the people, as Charles Black wrote in his famous book, is to have an organic relationship over time, and that's what we know. We have no sense of that, you know. It, you know, we may suspect its power. But now, you know, at, at earlier times, but now everybody thinks it's nothing but power. We we don't even report on the court any longer. Courts, courts, Eric, not just the Supreme Court. We don't even report on them anymore unless we say who appointed the judge. Well, let's go back to Justice Harlan. We can go off script here, Traeger, but I think it's worth it. Um, so <laughs> this is fascinating. Justice, Har- <laughs> Justice Harlan wrote an opinion in a case called Poe versus Ullman which actually was dismissed on jurisdictional grounds, but which became his opinion in a case everybody's heard of, heard of Griswold versus Connecticut. And in this opinion, um, he, it was not the opinion for the court. That was written by Justice Douglas, but Justice Harlan's opinion is definitely the more important of the, the most important of the opinions in that case. And in that opinion and others, Justice Harlan said, we can figure out fundamental rights by, quote, reasoned judgment, reasoned judgment. That's his phrase. By and, and he had some other adjectives, but it was mostly just by reason. Now, the reason that's so important today, and the reason why I disagree with Bruce about the arc of the universe, is O'Connor and Kennedy were big fans of Harlan. I mean, everybody is. And I don't know anyone who thinks Harlan was a bad justice. I mean, he has a great reputation. You can like him a little, like him a lot. No one thinks he's terrible, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But... Is a moderate guy and a sensible guy. But O'Connor and Kennedy, when it came to rights, he was their idol. He was who they followed. So they echoed him in their Casey opinion when they decided not to reverse Roe versus Wade. And they quoted Harlan's opinion in, in, in Griswold and Poe and quoted Harlan over and over again. And let me tell you that Justice, the, the six conservatives, on, well, the five conservatives on the Supreme Court today, other than Roberts, are doing everything they can to wipe out Harlan's legacy and the legacy of O'Connor and Kennedy. They are doing it intentionally. They are doing it strongly. They are doing it viciously. Um, And to me, one thing that we should take away, I don't agree with Alito or Thomas or, or Kavanaugh or Gorsuch or Barrett, but their skepticism that reason can get us home is a skepticism I kind of share when it comes to the Supreme Court of the United States, not when it comes to people in general. Um, but but so I would say to Bruce, Harlan's lost. 
he has lost. He oh, lost the battle. I'm sorry. Where when are you going to get to the point where we disagree? <laughs> okay. So what's it's, it's, so, it's so my, what's your so what's your answer then? I have an my, I have an answer. I, I know what my answer is. What's your answer? Well, I, I mean, I know that Harlan has lost. I mean, and but Harlan has lost on both sides. John Hart Eli was just as much a skeptic as uh, Scalia about values and reason. Yep. So uh, John Hart Eli being the great liberal uh, voice who wrote uh, Democracy and Distrust. Um, but we are, we are not aware, Eric, that we're all, that we're involved in such skepticism about values. I mean, we've just accepted it without thought, and we have we have no. Um, no, no sense that you cannot have a rule of law. If you if you don't believe in reason, there's no rule of law. It's simply power. I do think this symposium will really beautifully display because Bruce and I have worked very hard to make sure all political viewpoints and 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 we're very balanced ideologically. We mm -hmm. have some of the most famous conservatives in the country coming, Eugene Volokh and and, and, and others. And some of the most famous liberals in the country coming, and everybody in between. And so I have we, to break in yeah. here. I have to break in here so the audience realizes that this is only because of who Eric Siegel is. No, 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 we no, no, no. It's absolutely true that Eric is is a person who is respected by the people that he disagrees with, and who respects the people that he disagrees with. And that's so rare today. That's the only reason that we well, can I, have a, a, a symposium with, with different voices present. Um, Bruce is underselling his involvement here, but 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 going back to my thank you for the compliment. What I want to say is is we're going to find. So my answer is the Supreme Court should do almost nothing in constitutional law. That the Supreme Court should almost never get involved unless the violation is flagrantly, obviously, clearly unconstitutional. Hmm. We don't need reason for that. Ninety nine point nine percent of cases will be clear under that standard. There will be some cases that aren't. But 99.9% of cases will be clear. Um, and my point about that is these incredibly smart, brilliant people coming to this symposium. There's like 20, I don't know, Bruce, 20, 22, however many. 25. There How many? 25. 25 people. All right. So 25 people, all of whom are smart, all of whom understand what reason is, all of whom have studied the law. And they're going to disagree so much on abortion, affirmative action, Second Amendment, um, administrative law. All the big issues of the day, last term and this term, there's going to be widespread disagreement. That's that's not deniable. There's going to be this widespread disagreement, civil, fun, hopeful, but but disagreement. To which then I draw my ultimate conclusion: vote. Don't let elite lawyers from Harvard and Yale mandate answers from above. Vote. We disagree. The only time we should get these mandates from the Supreme Court sitting above us all is when the Constitution is clear. And on none of those issues is the Constitution clear. Hmm. Fascinating. Bruce, you had a response? No, no, I, I, I have to think about this from Eric. I just think that he sounds a lot like Holmes' dissent in Lochner. Yes. And, and Holmes was a great value skeptic. And so, um, you know, I can, I can accept uh, Eric's idea you know, even even though I think the court is, has meant a great deal, it's uh, some in some ways it's done as much harm as good. Uh, that's true. Although um, in areas like free speech, uh, Eric's uh, proposal would be a disaster uh, because uh, free speech is something that the majority sometimes does not value sufficiently until it's too late. So in some areas, I think the court has done a great deal of good that only a court could do. But really, I'm much more concerned about the the consequences, that it, not the legal consequences, but this surrender to skepticism that Eric's position represents will be fine. It can solve one, one problem, the problem of the Supreme Court, but it can't tell us how to build a secular civilization. Because when we vote, uh, we have the same problem we do with the court. If we believe that voting is nothing but war on, another, on some other ground, well, then we'll never we'll never have peace in society itself. We have to believe that over time, democracy itself moves toward justice. And if we can't believe that, we won't have democracy either. So we're we're Eric's just moving the problem from the court to the political realm, but it's not a different problem. Well, to be clear, I'm not a moral skeptic at all. So I, I want to be clear about that. I am absolutely not a moral skeptic. I am a skeptic of life-tenured elite lawyers making decisions for our country when we can't vote them in and we don't vote them out. 
Bruce, I think your comments about democracy, which I think we'll also talk about, certainly during the symposium, given voting rights and other things and, and the current events of the day. So I, I hope we talk about that. I think we will during the symposium. Um, I, I This is how I, I want to respond to that. Um, I spent 31 years, well, really more than that, 35 years studying the relationship between the Supreme Court and democracy, the Supreme Court and the states, the Supreme Court and the president, the Congress, the Supreme Court and the American people. And after 35 years, I have some pretty thought out views on, on, on why I think the court should do much, much less. I am not here to suggest I have any reasonably bright things to say about the demise of American democracy. But I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I don't know. We're, we're in desperate times. So I, you know, we've, we've covered a, a good number of cases we've covered. I'm curious, apart from everything we've mentioned thus far, which should be a light span, a light set of reading for our law student, <laughs> you know, attendees, what is essential reading or essential thoughts that a law student should come to this symposium bouncing around their brains? And Bruce, I'll start with you, if I may. Oh, you mean other than reading my book, The, the Universe is on Our Side? <laughs> That one that will be that will be another disclaimer as well as no uh, no accession by silence. But no, I think I think that um, the students should really look at the last term because uh, Eric and I were aware that um, something unusual happened in the last term that um, really set off the idea of the of the symposium. And Eric may be right that there have been such moments before, but that doesn't mean this isn't one of them. This is one of them. And uh, this is a moment in which the legitimacy of the court is very much in question in a way that it hasn't been in recent years, uh, even in 2000, where it made one very, very big decision that changed the course, perhaps, of American society. Although, as, as Eric's friend, uh, Judge Posner, pointed out in, in that case, it was the Florida Supreme Court that really went off the rails of law before the U.S. Supreme Court did, which mm. the U.S. Supreme Court also did. Um, but in any event, um, the students should be aware of what the court did last term because the court changed direction in, in very important ways. And if we're to conclude that it's anything other than a change in personnel, uh, if as the defenders of the court would say, it's a returning to something from earlier, then um, you know, that's a case that has to be made because that's not of course how it looks from the outside. So I'd say the most important thing is to be aware of, of just how revolutionary the last term was. Yeah, absolutely. So, so my books are older than Bruce's, so I recommend you read Bruce's book. Um, but um, as far as here's a thought I think people should keep in mind. And I'm going to I'm going to end my opening remarks, I think, with this thought. Um, I may change it the last minute. But um, so last year, last year, in the two of the most important cases in Supreme Court history, the court returns abortion to the states and strongly strengthens the Second Amendment right to own guns. Those two cases, one reversed 50 years of doctrine. The other one is going to spawn 50 years of new doctrine <laughs> unless unless it gets reversed. And in both cases, in one case, Justice Thomas, in the other case, Justice Alito, they lectured us about the importance of text, history and tradition. They said, we don't make policy decisions around here. We don't make policy choices. Text, history, tradition. That's what they said. Now, neither case really went off on those things, but that's what they kept lecturing us on. So this term, there's a huge affirmative action case. The justices are being asked to rule that thousands of universities across the country have to have colorblind admissions policy. Now, as a policy matter, I find affirmative action to be an interesting, and I'm general, I've been on admissions committees and hiring committees, and I'm generally in favor of limited affirmative action. Um, but I think there are reasonable arguments on both sides of that question. I know there are reasonable arguments on both sides of that question. Here is what there are not reasonable arguments about. The phrase colorblindness does not appear anywhere in the United States Constitution. Mm -hmm. In the part of the Constitution the court is going to use to impose this rule on everybody, the word race is not mentioned. And that's section um, one of the 14th Amendment. In addition, this country has never been colorblind, not for one second. We went from slavery to, 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 to black codes, to segregation, 
to Richard Nixon putting pressure on Michigan, Harvard, and Yale to take more blacks. Again, not colorblindness. So there's no text about colorblindness. There's no tradition of colorblindness. And the original meaning of the 14th Amendment absolutely did not require or even suggest colorblindness. If anything, it suggested what we would think it would suggest. The only way to get these slaves back into society on an equal basis is to do things specially for them. So colorblindness might be the best policy, but this year or last year, we were told, no, no, we don't do policy. We just look at text, history, and tradition. Next year, the court is going to impose colorblindness on everybody, even though text, history, and tradition, all three of those things do not support a colorblindness rule. In no way, shape, or form. I will not countenance counterarguments. There aren't any hmm. on that point. What are we going to do when the court completely reverses itself in its method to reach the policy choice it wants to reach? That's the question I would ask. And uh, by the way, I want you to know, Traeger, that on, on this point, in terms of history, text, and tradition, Eric is absolutely right. And I've often wondered how uh, the supposed conservatives uh, who endorse originalism could, could be unaware that the, the, the Congress that, that passed the 14th Amendment took numerous actions, in fact, that recognized race. I mean, it wasn't even an issue. The, common un the popular understanding of equal protection laws certainly permitted it, without, without doubt. Um, and it's not just in that area. I mean, there's also the area of religion where the court acted strongly and has somehow found that the free exercise of religion re requires government to pay churches. It certainly did not mean that. So there's another area that Eric, you know, could could have pointed to. Originalism simply doesn't happen. That's certainly. Well, by the, well, by the, well, well, and to Bruce's point earlier about free speech. I appreciate the point about religion because there were two huge religion cases last term. Bruce, that, as you mentioned, we're not originalist at all. But as to your point about free speech, if original, if Scalia and Thomas really believed in originalism, if Barrett and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch really believed in originalism, there'd be no First Amendment. Because we know what the original meaning of the First Amendment, I mean, there'd be a First right. Amendment, but it would apply to prior restraints. Meaning right. the founding fathers believed you couldn't punish speech before the fact. But once speech was uttered, the government could put you in jail for blasphemy, which they did into the late 19th century, for political sedition, for all kinds of things. Right. So and several, go ahead, and several of the state constitutions like Pennsylvania made that distinction clear at the time. Yeah. So there is no originalist argument for a robust free speech doctrine. There is, and Bruce could make it very well, a strong policy argument for a robust free speech argument. But again, we're not supposed to be doing policy on the Supreme Court. We're well, supposed to be doing text, tradition, and history. Well, I, I'm supposed to be doing policy because I'm a living constitutionalist. You know? <laughs> and so it, it really turns out that the, that the court is, is filled with living constitutionalists. But unfortunately, living constitutionalists who won't admit it, and, and this makes it difficult to have a debate about the real thing, you know, the, the values that are, in fact, motivating the court. And, and I don't know if there's anything worse than a court that does practice living constitutionalism, but insists that it's originalist. I'd like, yeah, I'd like to, I mean, that's an interesting idea. I've never heard that from Eric before, so I don't, I don't know about that. I will, I will say that, um, that in a healthy democracy, that is, if, if the system worked the way that it maybe used to and certainly could, like we didn't have a filibuster rule that was enforced all the time now in ordinary legislation, um, the court would not be very significant. Uh, it's the least dangerous branch. Congress has all the power in our system. And the only reason that we, we have the problems that we do, both in the judicial and the executive branch, is because Congress is broken. And uh, Congress doesn't have to be broken. Uh, we could accept the idea that we're, we're bitterly divided and we could move to a parliamentary system simply by allowing the, the party that has majority control to actually rule. And um, the Democrats you know, got close to that. All you need to do is get rid of the debt limit, get rid of the filibuster, and then when a party has majority control, it will actually be able to govern. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we'll have uh, divided government, but often we won't. And so um, I, I, I wouldn't worry about the court under those circumstances. And even, even with this court and even with the broken Congress, mostly um, the court is not imposing. I mean, it, it really is taking itself out of some areas. I mean, you know, abortion is one where it turns the matter back to the states. 
And so, um, it, and, and even in its major questions doctrine, it's not really anti-environmental as such, it's turning the matter over back to Congress, it says. So, you know, it, 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 the answer is democracy. And the only reason we have to worry about the court is because we're, we're not governing ourselves anymore. I think that's a really interesting point that we could spend three hours hashing out back and forth. I will say that a pretty smart guy writing in 1890, when he saw that the court had turned the Reconstruction Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th, um, from their intended purposes to help the newly freed slaves integrate into society, uh, to helping railroads and big business, and then rubber stamping separate but equal, a smart guy writing in the 1890s said, this court, um, this, that, that Congress is doing less because the court is doing more. And if the court did less, then Congress would have to. That guy was James Bradley Thayer, and he, and he, he was not a dumb guy. Um, it's a complex interaction between our, our president, our Congress, our states, and the Supreme Court. And I think Bruce is right that in a healthy democracy, the court would do a lot less. I'm just not sure which is the chicken and which is the egg. The last thing I want to say about that is I, I do disagree with Bruce on one point. The court is injecting it. It did take itself out of abortion, but it's going to put itself in. It's put itself into guns. It's going to put itself into affirmative action. It has put itself into administrative law. And most importantly for this discussion, Bruce, it has absolutely impaled Congress's efforts to improve democracy through the Voting Rights Act. And, and that had and has and had enormous consequences. I think you would agree negative ones for our society. And that was an act of judicial aggression almost like any other. To say that, what, this, this is almost funny. The court said that when Congress acts under its powers under the 14th Amendment, it has to, 14th Amendment, it, or the 15th Amendment, it has to have a very strong reason to treat different states differently which is the most ahistorical, atextual, bizarre rule the Supreme Court has ever uttered, because we know exactly why the Reconstruction Amendments were passed, and they were passed to give Congress the power to create a more just society by treating Southern states differently than Northern states, among other things, for obvious reasons. For the court to say that Congress can't treat Alabama differently than Nebraska or Maine, uh, given Alabama's history compared to Maine's history is absolutely insane. And that voting rights decision did a lot to destroy our democracy. Well, uh, you know, ironically, though, the other part that the court has, has has engaged in that is threatening our democracy is its refusal to protect the right to vote. That too. I mean, you know, I mean, ironically, here's an area where I, I would like to see the court do a great deal more or at least do something, you know, I, I was sympathetic to Robert's opinion in Rucho that said we can't be sure exactly how uh, representation should work in a democracy. But but in Pennsylvania, we had the 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 the, the congressional district of uh, of goofy kicking Donald Duck. Uh, you didn't have to have a a very sophisticated theory to say that that was an unconstitutional gerrymander, which the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ultimately said. So you know, I'd like to see the court in in the area of voting. Do, do a great deal more, although not uh, got well, the Voting Rights Act. Well, hold on to that, Bruce, because this term, the court may very well tell the Pennsylvania, the North Carolina Supreme Court, but also the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and the Wisconsin Supreme Court, because gerrymandering in Wisconsin, you know, is about as bad as it gets. Absolutely. Um, um, they're about to, I think they, I think the Supreme Court's going to rule this term, that state Supreme Courts have no authority over state elections. Which is another, I, I think Eric's right that that's what they're going to do. Although, the, you know, it, they may get some pause. I was surprised that what's the organization that represents all the chief justices? All 50 states. All, Republican and Democrats. And, uh, you know, they filed a brief in that case. And I, I was shocked. And um, we heard about that from former uh, Chief Justice Tom Saylor in my state con law class. Um, the, the chief justices are up in arms about this, Eric. And it that may be. have an impact. Maybe, but you're saying you want the court to do more. Your definition of more may not be what the court's definition of more is. Well, you know, I, they can't do much worse than calling political gerrymandering a political question. That's just an invitation. They can. The, the, the thing that's worse is telling state supreme courts they can't they can't get involved either, and that's yeah, what they're right. going to and that's what they're going to do. That may very well be what they're going to do, and that's just insane. Uh, by the way, I think Bruce and I would agree. 
as a policy matter, that's insane. To say that the, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Maryland, Maryland is terribly gerrymandered for Democrats. Um, you know, whatever, whatever the whichever way it falls, it's a nonpartisan statement I'm making. It's one thing to say the federal courts aren't going to get involved, and I actually have sympathy for that. I'm not sure how I feel, but I have sympathy. But to say state supreme courts under state law can't call a gerrymander a gerrymander as a matter of federal law is insane. I mean, it's it's overreaching beyond one's imagination, isn't it, Bruce? It is, and and um, and some of the opinions leading up to this have misread the lower court opinions badly, but we're getting off the point. This is a, a little too in the weeds, I think, for Traeger. <laughs> hey, but it's, I mean, I am just, I am riveted to this. This is fascinating. And I've written it down, Eric. I mean, we'll see how it ends up by the end of the year, but I, I think the prediction is pretty good. Um, now I'm curious. Well, we, there are five votes. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were four, there were, there were four votes before, and now there's one more justice. So I don't think there's much doubt there's five votes. There may be six. There, there could be six, right? Although, you know, the Roberts opinion in the Arizona case was is much more justifiable than what we're talking about. At least that cut the legislature out altogether. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave that for another time. Right. <laughs> now, I'm curious. We started this by touching on reform a little bit about the idea of, of, a, of an equally um, proportioned court. Um, and I'm curious, we, we touched on a couple different types of reform and ways that the system could improve. I'd like to ask, is is it likely? It's probably not likely enough to stop the decision coming down, Eric, that you predicted, but do you see this happening anytime in the future? Or are we stuck? I'll let Bruce go first. This time. Well, I mean, there can't be a constitutional amendment uh, under current circumstances, but as Eric points out, the number of justices on the court is simply a statute. And that, and that could change. Uh, but but remember, I, I don't believe that, that that the liberals and Democrats who are clamoring for these so-called reforms really care about these reforms. All they care about is go, go the court going the other way. So, you know, I don't have any greater respect for the institutional uh, uh, values that are being proposed because I think they're all self-serving. They're all political. I, I have a I have a different answer, I think, but it's very tentative. But it also will be much clearer on this answer in December of this year. Um, if the Democrats do substantially better in this November election than midterm parties normally do, which is terribly, if the Democrats do real well, which I don't think is likely, but if they do real well, trust me, the court will take heed and they will notice it and, and they will change. They will change. They will soften. They will. Even these stubborn people will, will, will change. You may get a situation. I, I actually wrote a blog post two months ago for the first time in my life saying it's time to start a difficult discussion. Maybe the president should ignore the Supreme Court. Maybe in one of these administrative law decisions where, where the EPA tries to do something and, and the court says they can't. Maybe the president says, no, do it anyway. Make See, see what happens. See, because Because at the end of the day, the president can't if, if President Eisenhower had not called in the National Guard to force the governor of Arkansas to segregate his schools, the court could not have done that. It mm -hmm. took Eisenhower's National Guard to do that. I don't I think there might come a time where the president says, no, I am not going to follow this decision. Tough. And then judicial review is over. And then we have a real problem. The court knows this. And it's going to watch the elections carefully. Well, that's interesting. You know, Eric, our positions have now switched. I've, <laughs> I've already told the, the, the legislature in Pennsylvania to ignore the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in a court, court funding case and right. got a lot of heat for it. Um, but I think that uh, the, one of the reasons the court's the least dangerous branch is because the framers of the Constitution would have understood what Eric said perfectly well. They did it. No, Hamilton, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But Hamilton said it in 78. He said it. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that that's a, a shocking idea, uh, and I, and I, I think it would be fine, and uh, um, in in many ways, uh, it would be a good idea. Um, Bruce, a lot of what we're talking about tonight is speculation, but I'll tell you something that's not speculation. Trust me when I tell you it was a shocking idea to many, 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 many people, including friends of mine, including progressive constitutional law professor friends of mine. So no, they were shocked by it. 
they would well, like. I'd rather, I'd rather see something like that than changing the number on the court, because something like that is a it's it, it is more organic. It's smaller. It's more specific. It's not all or nothing. It's it's give and take, you know. But I mean, Lincoln and Jackson and Jefferson would not have been shocked by your suggestion. Well, that's because, and this is really my motto for the two-day symposium coming up in a couple of weeks that we're here talking about. This is my motto. Here's a rule, anybody who's listening to this podcast, and it's so obvious, and America has violated it for 220 years or something. Never, ever, under any circumstances, no exceptions, give a government official unreviewable power for life. How's that for a rule? It's not so hard. Don't give a government official unreviewable power for life. And we have done that with this institution. It's been broken. It was broken from before it started. A guy named Brutus was writing before the Constitution was ratified and said, do not let this document go for a bunch of reasons. But one of which was, don't give judges life tenure and the power to strike down laws. That's a crazy thing to do. No other country in the history of the world has done it, and we shouldn't do it either. Right. And a, and a number of the states like Pennsylvania that had lifetime tenure gave it up yeah. over time. But, and I would say right now, 49 states don't have life tenure. I think Rhode Island might, or there might be one state that does. But in none of those states is there the tradition of striking down laws that the Supreme Court has had since 1857. They strike down laws. But not they don't run their states the way the Supreme Court runs the United States of America. Yeah, well, we, we're back to the question of Congress. You know, I'm, I'm hoping for a healthy Congress pretty <laughs> soon, if not 22, 24, because I think I think the Republicans are on their way to making it easier for the Democrats to put together a working majority that actually can govern. But you can't. You got to get rid of the filibuster. And I, I also should say that. Um, uh, yeah, Eric and I are not uh, monolithic politically. I, I, I was pro-life until Roe was overturned. And I found out that I wasn't pro-life because the pro-life movement became crazy. Uh, <laughs> it turned out that, you know, it was reasonable to overturn Roe, maybe. But uh, then they started uh, banning abortion in circumstances in which, which harmed women who wanted their children and found themselves in tragic circumstances. So the, uh, the 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 overturning of Roe has now undermined the pro-life movement, ironically. Now people can say, "Well, you were very naive," and and they, that's probably the case, but that's not what we were signing up for. We thought. And, and, and Traeger, I want to use this moment to um, plug the symposium, which of course is really the main reason we're here. Um, right. Bruce and I did not know each other until we started planning this together, and. Um, so what Bruce and I have in common, I think, and we knew this pretty early on from each other, um, is that what Bruce just said, I was pro-life until I realized that maybe that movement wasn't really about pro-life and doing crazy things and harming women. Um, it's quite a concession from somebody who is pro-life. I am pro-choice all the way down, all the way down. I think Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided. What Bruce and I have done in this symposium is try to put together a bunch of people who can be intellectually honest like that. My progressive friends just will get so mad at me. You're pro-choice, but you think Roe is wrong. Yes, I'm pro-choice and I think Roe is wrong and I think I can support that belief. Um, I think we put together a bunch of people who will be intellectually honest and not just parrot the party line. Um, and that's why I hope it's gonna be a great symposium. Right, and that's certainly what we have tried to do. Yeah, that is marvelous. I, this conversation alone has me over the moon excited for this symposium. I, I'll pick up on that, the idea of intellectual honesty. And it, it's clear in this conversation that you're meeting each other where you are and you're you're developing your viewpoints. And I'm, I'm excited for more of them that at the symposium, what other messages apart from be intellectually honest would you like for the symposium to ring loud and clear? What do you want this symposium to say? Huh. That I, I have a clear answer for this, and this is the only reason that I really want to be involved in this, other than I thought it'd be fun to work with someone I didn't know yet. Civility. Um, I wrote a blog post today, just today, came out today, about why I am going to the Federalist Society Convention in 10 days, or in three weeks, 
even though I think the leadership of that organization has done irreparable harm to this country. Because the rank and file have not. And there are thousands of lawyers and law professors and students in the Federalist Society who I think have very reasonable, decent views I get along with well. I may disagree with them here and there, but um, I want this symposium to show serious disagreement in a civil and even friendly manner. Beautiful. And I, 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 I absolutely echo that. Civil discourse is still possible, but I, I want to put it back into the context I started with. Bernard Lonergan, who gave, gave me the question, is the universe on our side, was really a philosopher of decline. I mean, he, he wrote about what, what do you do in periods of decline? And he said, in periods of decline, you, you, you gather with others, uh, like-minded others, uh, and engage in rational discourse when no one around you is doing so. And he called that, that action cosmopolis. And he said, cosmopolis spreads and arrests decline. And, uh, and I'm hoping this symposium will be a little, a little piece of Cosmopolis uh, right in front of, because uh, so many national figures are in it, right in front of American law. That, that's beautifully said. I want to say that, that um, um, so I think Bruce and I agree on a lot of things and we disagree on a lot of things. And I, I would say I don't know a lot of things. I don't know if God is dead or alive or whatever. Um, but what I will say is we both, and I got this in our first conversation we ever had together, we both feel deeply that not just our little part of the world, the law professor, law student, lawyer, culture, but the country as a whole needs to be able to disagree and then go have dinner mm -hmm. together. That's what we need to do. And I've been doing that at, Federalist, at local Federalist Society events for the last... Uh, both before COVID and then a little bit since COVID. And what I find is when we actually sit down at dinner, A, we find much more common ground. I'm a board member of the American Constitution Society, you know, the opposite. I find we find common ground. We find that we like each other more often than not. Um, and we walk away going, well, I feel just a little bit better about the world than I did two hours ago. If this symposium can make people feel just a little bit better than before the symposium, I'd be happy. Not, not, and not. That doesn't mean I want to be right. It just means I want us to walk away feeling better about the, thing, the whole thing. Well, I am so excited for people to get to see this conversation writ large in the symposium with with other voices and you two guiding this. Thank you so much for for doing this and planning this out. It's going to be a really interesting couple of days here. And thank you, Traeger, for giving us this opportunity. Eric and I actually don't get to talk that much. Yeah, no, this Together. is great. Traeger, thank you. This has been great. And thank you for letting us go off script and just kind of yammer at each other for a bit. It was, oh, it my was, nice. it was fun. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, gentlemen, I'll, uh, I'll see you in a couple of weeks here. I can't wait. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. Have a good night. Thank you so much for joining us. Bruce, Eric, and I hope to see you at the symposium at the end of October. Remember, you can register at wlr.wisc.edu. See you there.